You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right. Uh, this is Money Talk, and I'm Andrew Work, and we are took looking at your money today. Carolyn Wright is investigating what your chances are of recovering your assets if you're unfortunate uh, to, enough to fall victim to a scam. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Scams of all sorts hit the headlines all the time, and criminals are constantly upping their game to catch you out. And while these fraudsters will attempt to steal any sort of assets, digital assets are becoming a more common target. According to the South China Morning Post, losses just from cryptocurrency scams here in Hong Kong doubled to 1.7 billion Hong Kong dollars last year, with a 67% spike in cases. I'm joined now by Henry Chambers, who is Managing Director in the Disputes and Investigations Practice at Alvarez & Marcel in Hong Kong, to discuss what you need to know about scams of all sorts and what help is out there. Now, Henry, you've got over 12 years experience in forensic accounting. Tell us, what is a forensic accountant and, and how does that help you with uh, understanding scams? Thanks, Caroline, and good to be on the show with you today. The way I like to describe being a forensic accountant, it's a bit like being... Sherlock Holmes with a calculator. We help our clients try and understand the backing to the allegations that they've been subject to, the issues they've found. So we're there to try and identify the underlying evidence that proves whether they've been scammed or not, and then ultimately try and help them seek recovery. So we, we take our magnifying glasses out and we go through the accounting records, we look through chat records, we try and really get to the bottom of what's happened here in the particular piece of malfeasance, the fraud, the scam in this case. So talking of those scams, which scams are most common at the moment for both individuals and for companies? Yeah, so what we're seeing, certainly coming across my desk as it relates to individuals, it's a lot of investment scams. So we're seeing people contacted through various social media, through WhatsApp, etc., trying to push a particular investment, whether it's foreign exchange, cryptocurrency or property. And, and people are, are contacted on the basis they, you know, you're going to go and make a lot of money. You're saying, OK, invest in this cryptocurrency or in this property and you're going to see double digit returns. But that aside, we're also seeing a lot of romance scams. So people who are contacted again on the likes of Tinder or Bumble, uh, and there's a, a trust relationship developed there. And then thereafter, there's an extortion of money from that individual. And we also see the more traditional phone scams uh, as well, where someone will call you up in purportedly a position of authority they're from the, the tax bureau, or they're from you know, a regulator and say, hey, you owe us this money. Uh, and people then uh, you know, respond to that uh, and end up sending cash. From a company side, it, it is slightly different. We see different scams there. We see um, a, a lot of email compromise. We call them BECs, whereby there are either the company's emails have been compromised, so they sent a, gen a legitimate email from a company making uh, requests for cash, or there's emails that are very, very similar to a company's email. We also see vendor invoices uh, and vendor scams where people would f submit fictitious invoices to, to try and extract cash, uh, as well as other uh, similar issues where the people who are trying to cause trust issues with the CEO, etc. So, so these scammers, you're obviously talking about the most popular sort of scams at the moment. Are they just trying to find a loophole and the easiest way to get into a, a company and, and extract money or, or to an individual? Is it is it to do with trust? Is it How do they build that relationship and, and, and catch you out? Yeah. Well, what I would say, I think that the, the common thread across all of these is that the trust issue. It's building that relationship, no matter what 
the nature of it is the things I've just described it's always it's a confidence trick and it's trying to ensure that, that you believe what they're telling you when actually that's based on nothing at all and, and so that's what, where, we, where we see that we also do see as you say the exploitation of a loophole so where your internal controls in your company are not up to standard where you're seeing you've got gaps in your, your cyber security you know they can be exploited as well and they're another way in which people will try and you know exploit and get cash out of a business or an individual you may not realise that you've been scammed. So how is it that, that when these scammers are caught out, how is it that you, you, you realise, oh, oh, you know, I've been making all these payments. This doesn't seem right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a good point. So if you're facing, let's say it's an investment scam, that's, that's a good one, because that's, that's one of the, the bigger ones. And you can see your paper profits accumulating on the screen. You can see, yes, wow, my, my account is 10 times what I, what I put in. It's when you come to withdraw that uh, and try and actually get cash out is when we, that first comes to light. Now, that's also not always the case. Um, it may be that you've been dealt with a, a fake invoice or a fake vendor and you've paid for this service or this product and it never arrives or it arrives in quite, not quite the standard you expected it to. So it's ultimately upon the delivery of what you were meant to get for your money. That's when you'd find out that you are subject to that scam. So you found out you've been the victim. What are your chances? What are you ever going to get those assets back, whatever they happen to be? Can you recover them? It depends. So the, 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 the best way and the biggest chance of success is if you move very, very quickly. The faster you move, the better the chances are that you're able to, to deal with it. If it's in the traditional finance world, you're speaking with your financial intermediary, your banks, etc., I think there's a, a better chance there of, of dealing and trying to get some restitution. If you're dealing with cryptocurrency, it becomes more challenging because of the speed at which cryptocurrency transactions can move around the world. And so uh, say the faster you do that, the, the, the better. The other consideration around you know, being able to recover assets is that the cost benefit. So let's say, unfortunately, you're, um, you've lost 10,000 US dollars, let's say, or equivalent. Potentially, the, the legal costs associated with that can be quite high as well. So you need to consider, well, if I undertake a process to try and make these recoveries, you know, is that going to be worthwhile and worth my time and money and effort? And are there, am I actually going to get any success at the end? And, and it just really depends on what the nature of the scam was, who, the, who did it, and also if it's cross-border as well. That's another place where we find a lot of issues as well in the work that we do. If we're seeing movements from jurisdiction to jurisdiction to jurisdiction, there's a lot of time spent uh, following through all, all of the various uh, paper trail there and dealing with you know, law enforcement in, in re re the relevant jurisdictions. So uh, the complexity of the case grows at that point. So I'd say you know, if, if it's a domestic thing done very quickly within Hong Kong and you're dealing with a bank, you know, maybe there's a slightly higher chance there. But if it's gone elsewhere around the world, then well, I'd say the chances are, are slightly lower. So what can help and what can hinder when you're doing your investigative work to try and help recover these assets? You know, what are the main challenges that you face when you're mm -hmm. carrying out an investigation? Well, well, our investigation necessarily is always predicated on the existence of documents and, and things to look at, things to evidence the existence of, of, of fund flows. So if we don't have access to the required documents, bank statements, etc., that allow us to perform that investigation, well, that certainly can hinder our work. So, you know, whenever we look at a, a fraud, you know, the first thing we do, uh, whether it's an individual or a company, is go in with a document request. We say, please give us X, Y, Z documents that'll help us show where these assets, cash, etc., move to. Without those, that's going to 
prove more, more challenging for us. The other thing is cooperation as well. It can sometimes be, again, if you're a corporate, you know, having some third party like myself and my team crawling over your documents can be sometimes a little unpalatable. You know, you don't want someone doing that in necessarily the same way as you might do yourself. So, but without that cooperation, it's going to make us, again, make it hard for us to, to go and perform that uh, investigation. Technology moves on a lot, and a lot of us now we use messaging services where it's very, very easy to delete a conversation. How much of a problem is that? We've had big names in the financial world who have been caught out and fined because their staff have used these services. I assume that's something you'd probably say, try not to do that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something we're, we're seeing more and more of. We, we call it ephemeral messaging. So messaging with a, a short lifespan. There are some famous apps that do it. Um, and, you know, there, there are potentially legitimate uses for it. But more often we see, well, you know, why do you need a message to self-destruct um, after it's been read? certainly from a business perspective. And so one of the things that we advise our clients to do, if again, if it's, if it's a corporate device, you know, we shouldn't be having messages that can self-destruct on that corporate device because that's poor record keeping. And if we ever need to go back and look at what those messages were for the purpose of an investigation or otherwise, we're not going to be able to do that. So absolutely, uh, you know, if you're a small corporate, it's something you should be aware of because without those records, uh, you know, you really can come a cropper, so to speak, when looking back at uh, the, the messages history. Now, you're also a member of the Hong Kong chapter of the Crypto Forward Nasset Recovery Network, or CFAR, which launched late uh, September last year. Let's take a look at the differences between trying to recover crypto and other assets, because I feel like in some ways, something that's done on the blockchain, there should be a record of what happened. But when you were talking about transactions going across borders, by its very nature, crypto is borderless, so it makes it much more difficult. Yes, no, that, that's right. I mean, if we, if we look at crypto as a specific example, you're absolutely right. You can follow those transactions through the blockchain. You can see the movement. And, and we, get, we often get clients who say, well, look, here is my, my wallet address. Where's it gone? And we can say, with, that, with absolute certainty at that point, we can see it's moved from here to here to here, and it's now in this wallet address. The problem is, is knowing who's owning that final wallet address. And, and often, if it's not with some kind of centralized exchange, we won't know. And so that is where it really proves challenging in that recovery effort for cryptocurrency, in that if it's in a you know, non-custodial self-held wallet, being able to actually get your hands around that is really hard. So one of the things that we try and do as investigators is associate wallet addresses with individuals. And if we can do that via legal mechanisms with centralized exchanges um, or other you know, investigative work, kind of the typical follow the, the money type work, um, you know, that, that's where we, we, we try and, and bring that recovery effort together. But the tracing in and of itself is, is helpful, interesting, but, but not the, the full part of the story. So it sounds to me, no matter what sort of transaction you're making, you're best to always keep records and keep those records in a form that is non-destructible. And that is the best way, if anything does go wrong, that you know, you, you can help with an investigation and prosecutors can chase whoever those criminals happen to be. That's, that's right. And that, that would be my, my takeaway from this is that the record keeping um, piece is it's our Bible. It's what we go to for our work. And if unfortunately you ever do end up the subject of a scam, a fraud, you're going to be very thankful that you kept hold of those records at that time. Good stuff. Thank you for joining me today. Henry Chambers, Managing Director in the Disputes and Investigations Practice at Alvarez and Marcel here in Hong Kong.